Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! I can see it in their eyes. I can hear it in their voices. They stare at me as if to say, look at what we've done. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson makes history, becoming the first black female justice to ever hear a Supreme Court case, as public support of the conservative court has fallen to a record low. Justices hear major cases this term on affirmative action, voting rights, LGBTQ rights, online speech, and more. We'll speak with the nation's Elie Mistal. Then we look at the former French colony of Burkina Faso, which has just seen its second military coup this year. And we go back more than a century to look at the Elaine Massacre of 1919, when white mobs in Arkansas killed over 200 African Americans in one of the worst racial massacres in U.S. history. They said they killed so many black people that the blood ran through the streets like water. And my grandmother stood up on the railroad track and watched them haul the bodies out and down there in trucks. They had bodies laying all around the field. We'll speak to the historian Paul Ortiz and Julia Wright, the daughter of the renowned author Richard Wright. His uncle was lynched in Elaine, Arkansas in 1916. Wright writes about this in his classic memoir, Black Boy. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has formally ruled out direct peace talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin after the Kremlin declared it had annexed four Ukrainian territories seized by Russia's military. Earlier today, Zelensky signed a decree stating talks with Putin over Ukraine's fate would be, quote, impossible, adding, quote, we're ready for a dialogue with Russia, but with another president of Russia, unquote. This comes as Ukraine's military continues to claim battlefield victories. In the east, Ukraine's military is advancing toward the Russian-held Luhansk region after its troops recaptured the city of Liman on Saturday. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces reportedly retook territory along the Dnieper River in the south on Monday. In Afghanistan, the death toll in last week's attack on an educational center in Kabul has risen to 53, with more than 110 people injured. Most of the victims were young women and girls. On Friday, a suicide bomber struck inside the building as hundreds of students studied for a university entrance exam. It was the latest attack on the minority Hazara community, which has repeatedly been targeted by the ISIS-K militant group. Over the weekend, Afghan women took to the streets of Kabul and other cities to protest the killing. In response, Taliban soldiers fired warning shots over the protesters' heads, smashed some of their cell phones, beat them, cursed at them, and forced them to disperse. This is Asya Askari, the older sister of Um Abanin, one of the students killed in Friday's bomb attack. 
We are really worried. It's hard for us. All the schools are closed to girls. In the educational center, an unfortunate incident happened. Not only was Um al Benin martyred, but also Samira, Zara, and the security guard named Tahir, who are all like members of our family and serve to protect us in the educational center. It is a very painful scene, but we will continue with the lessons and we will never give up or stop. Iran's Supreme Court leader has made his first public comments about the death of Masa Amini, the 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman who died after she was detained by Iran's so-called morality police for allegedly wearing her headscarf improperly. Speaking to military cadets at a graduation ceremony in Tehran, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei on Monday labeled nationwide protests that have broken out over Amini's killing as riots. He blamed the United States and Israel for organizing them. I say this clearly, that these riots and insecurities were designed by America and the usurping and fake Zionist regime. They have sat down and planned this. They have planned this. And those who take their salaries, some being traitorous Iranians abroad, have helped them. On Monday, President Biden said he was gravely concerned about the intensifying violent crackdown and peaceful protesters, while promising to impose further costs on Iran. On Monday, Canada announced new sanctions against senior Iranian officials, while Germany and other European countries submitted more than a dozen proposals for the new European Union sanctions on Iran. Mass protests in Haiti are continuing for a seventh week to demand the resignation of the U.S.-backed Prime Minister Ariel Henry and to condemn rising fuel prices. We are in the streets to say that we cannot breathe because of the high cost of living. Today we are in the streets to say that we want our dollars. Today we are in the streets to say that we do not accept the increase in price of fuel because fuel is a significant product. If we add one cent to its cost, then the price of all products will triple or increase fivefold. As long as Prime Minister Ariel Henry does not give up power, we will continue to fight. The ongoing protests in Haiti have shut down many parts of the country. Meanwhile, Haitian authorities have announced eight people have died from cholera, the first cholera deaths in Haiti in three years. A cholera outbreak over a decade ago killed over 10,000 people in Haiti. In Somalia, at least 20 people were killed Monday in a pair of car bomb attacks. A militant group al-Shabaab took responsibility, claiming the attack in the central city of Beledouane killed Somali government officials and soldiers. The violence came after the U.S. military said it killed the leader of al-Shabaab in an airstrike Saturday. U.S. Africa Command says its initial assessment showed Abdullahi Nadir was killed, while no civilians were injured in the strike 230 miles southwest of the capital this comes after the Pentagon claimed in an annual report published last week, U.S. forces killed only 12 noncombatants in 2021. The war monitoring group Air Wars accused the Pentagon of vastly undercounting civilian deaths, noting it documented up to 25 civilians killed by the U.S. last year in Syria alone. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli soldiers shot and killed two Palestinians and injured a third Monday as they drove their car near a checkpoint outside the city of Ramallah. Israel's military accused the young men of plotting to carry out a car ramming attack. The families of the men dispute Israel's account, saying the soldiers opened fire on their vehicle and killed them in cold blood. Thus come this comes as the EU-Israel Association Council is holding its first meeting in a decade today. Ahead of the talks, Amnesty International said in a statement, quote, Israel's committing the crime of apartheid against Palestinians. This is a crime against humanity requiring the EU to hold Israel 
Israel's leaders to account and to ensure it in no way supports their apartheid system. Any cooperation must focus on dismantling Israel's cruel system of oppression and domination, Amnesty said. Meanwhile, Palestinian leaders are condemning a proposal by Britain's new prime minister, Liz Truss, to move the United Kingdom's embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So far, the U.S. is virtually alone among nations in recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital after then-President Trump relocated the U.S. embassy there in 2018. Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Shdeya spoke from Ramallah Monday. Any change in the status quo in Jerusalem would undermine the two-state solution and will be considered a tacit recognition of the city's annexation to Israel, which will encourage the occupying state and the settlers' radical groups to continue their aggression towards our people and toward the Islamic and Christian holy sites in Jerusalem. Japan's government has condemned North Korea's military after it test-fired a ballistic missile over the Japanese island of Hokkaido, triggering an emergency alert for 5 million residents, who the missile reportedly flew for nearly 3,000 miles before crashing into the Pacific far to the east of Japan, which would make it North Korea's longest test flight of a missile to date. This comes after Japan and South Korea joined trilateral U.S.-led naval war games last week in the waters off the Korean Peninsula. President Biden visited Puerto Rico Monday, where he pledged U.S. disaster relief two weeks after Hurricane Fiona collapsed the island's electrical grid with high winds, storm surge and heavy flooding. Speaking from the port of Ponce on Puerto Rico's southern coast, Biden pledged to send every single dollar promised to Puerto Rico by the federal government. We know that the climate crisis and more extreme weather are going to continue to hit this island and hit the United States overall. And as we rebuild, we have to ensure that we build it to last. We're particularly focused on the power grid. Biden pledged $60 million in additional funding to shore up Puerto Rico's levees, fortify flood walls, and create a new flood warning system. His pledge came as FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell said the cost of repairing Puerto Rico's electrical grid would require billions of dollars. Tomorrow, Biden tours parts of Florida devastated by Hurricane Ian. The storm's death toll has topped 100, with search and rescue crews on warning they're likely to uncover more bodies in hard-hit parts of Florida's Gulf Coast in the coming days. The University of Idaho has warned its employees not to discuss contraception with students or to provide reproductive health counseling at the risk of being fired and charged with a felony. Since the Supreme Court's ruling in June that overturned federal abortion rights under Roe v. Wade, Idaho has seen nearly all abortions outlawed under a so-called trigger law passed in 2019. Last week, the university's general counsel wrote in an email to faculty and staff, officials will also enforce a law dating back to 1867, when Idaho was a territory, making it a crime to advertise abortion services and birth control. Civil liberties groups have condemned the guidance as a violation of free speech on campus. Adam Steinbow is an attorney with the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. The First Amendment protects the rights of university faculty at public universities and colleges to discuss matters uh, in class that are relevant to the class. Uh, the First Amendment protects that. And if you were telling them that if they are seen to promote abortion in their class or academic work, they could wind up in handcuffs. That's that's a First Amendment problem. 
And in sports news, a year-long independent investigation has documented systemic abuse of players at all levels of women's soccer, including the National Women's Soccer League. The lead investigator was Sally Yates, who briefly served as acting attorney general. In a statement, Yates said, quote, Our investigation has revealed a league in which abuse and misconduct, verbal and emotional abuse and sexual misconduct, have become systemic, spanning multiple teams, coaches and victims. Yates went on to say, quote, abuse in the NWSL is rooted in a deeper culture in women's soccer, beginning in youth leagues that normalizes verbally abusive coaching and blurs boundaries between coaches and players, unquote. The independent investigation comes a year after two coaches in the National Women's Soccer League were fired over abuse allegations. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The U.S. Supreme Court opened its new term Monday with a historic first, as Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson became the first black female justice to ever hear a Supreme Court case. President Biden nominated Jackson after Stephen Breyer announced his retirement. On Friday, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson spoke at an event organized by the Library of Congress ahead of her first day on the court. As I reflect on my own recent experience of being appointed as the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court, it is that, more than anything, that I have witnessed. People from all walks of life approach me with what I can only describe as a profound sense of pride and what feels to me like renewed ownership. I can see it in their eyes. I can hear it in their voices. They stare at me as if to say, look at what we've done. They say, they say this. This is what we can accomplish if we put our minds to it. They might not use those words, but I get the message. They are calling on the ancestors, hearkening back to history and claiming their stake at last. They're saying to me, in essence, you, girl, you go, girl. <laughs> They're saying, invisible no more. We see you and we are with you. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson speaking Friday. She joins the Supreme Court at a time when conservatives hold a six to three majority and public support of the court is at an all-time low. A recent Gallup poll shows just a quarter of the country has a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court. In its last term, the conservative court overturned Roe v. Wade and expanded gun rights in the United States. The court will be hearing major cases this term.
on affirmative action, voting rights, LGBTQ rights, online speech and more, to talk more about what's ahead for the court and the significance of the latest justice on the court. Ellie Mistal is with us, the nation's justice correspondent, author of the best-selling book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. His recent article, The Supreme Court Returns on Monday Stronger and More Terrible Than Ever. Ellie, welcome back to Democracy Now! Let's start with this historic first. Let's start with Justice um, Katanji Brown-Jackson. Talk about the significance of this newest justice and then what she faces on this docket. Uh, morning, Amy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Katanji Brown-Jackson is great. Her first day was yesterday. She already um, got right in there asking really pertinent and probative questions um, of the attorneys at the case. You know, so she didn't seem to need a whole lot of uh, uh, time to get comfortable in her new job. I think she's going to be a great justice. I think she is going to have a great career ahead of her writing dissents because she is clearly in the minority on that court. And the things that are coming down the pipe are terrifying and horrible. And all she will be able to do is, through her questioning at oral arguments and through her writing at decision time, all she'll be able to do is to highlight the extremism of the conservative majority voting bloc on the Supreme Court. So let's talk about affirmative action and voting rights. Voting rights, the oral arguments will be heard tomorrow. Talk about these two cases and how they could change this country. Yeah, so let's start with voting rights. That, that case is actually today, Amy. It's uh, 11 o'clock. Sorry, I'm already, today. Uh, yeah, getting ready for it. Um, what the the first kind of case out of the out of the out of the docket here um, is a case that involves a gerrymandered district in Alabama. Um, their state should have had two majority majority districts instead majority minority districts instead they only had one. Um, back and forth a little bit, and what what will likely come down is yet another attack on Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, people need to understand, when the Constitution was written exclusively by white males, five of the current justices on the Supreme Court were not allowed to vote. We've gone through a lot of constitutional amendments. We had a war trying to establish some idea of universal suffrage. But that idea of universal suffrage didn't become a reality for a, for, for a, a large minority of Americans until the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. And it is that act that Chief Justice John Roberts has been an enemy of for his entire career. One of the first things that we will see from this term is yet another Roberts-led attack on the idea of universal suffrage. Um, later this month, we will hear our cases on affirmative action. Um, Amy, I've said uh, many times, Republicans and Clarence Thomas have been trying to kill affirmative action for as long as I've been alive. And uh, this term, this October, they will do it. They will hear a case this October, <clears throat> excuse me, that will allow them to do it. And this June, they will they will finally end affirmative action. I think any hope that they would find some way um, to keep the idea of affirmative action alive went out of the window when they overturn Roe v. Wade. Because when, when you have a court that's willing to overturn 50 years of precedent um, and, and reduce women to the status 
of second-class citizens, it is not hard to uh, overturn another 50 years of precedent and make college admissions safe for mediocre white fail sons, which is what they're going to do this year. On Monday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case of Sackett versus EPA. The case challenges the Clean Water Act and the federal government's ability to protect and preserve wetlands. During oral arguments, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson questioned Damian Schiff, the lawyer for the Sackett family, which sued the EPA. Let's listen. Why is it that your conception of this does not relate in any way to Congress's primary objective. Do you dispute that the primary objective, as stated in the statute, I guess it's at 1251, uh, is that Congress cared about making sure that the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the nation's waters was protected? Justice Jackson, we don't dispute that. However, no statute pursues its purpose or, object, uh, or its objective at all costs. That, that the limitations in the statute are as much a part of its purpose as its affirmative authorization. So why didn't Congress say immediately adjacent? If they were trying to uh, achieve something different than what the regulations had said about adjacency, if they were balancing their concerns about protecting the integrity of the navigable waters with the property interests in the state's um, uh, rights to control it, why didn't they say immediately adjacent in terms of the, of the wetlands coverage? So that's Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson as she spoke on the, in the oral arguments of the first case that she is um, <clears throat> considering in the Supreme Court, as a Supreme Court justice. Ellie Mistel put it into uh, lay terms here, what this case uh, yeah, is against the EPA. So I love that the question that you played because a lot of your your viewers understand or have heard what originalism is, right? The idea that when in doubt, when 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 there's ambiguity, we should go back to the original intentions of the white male exclusively founding fathers and think about what they might have wanted back in the 18th century, right? So Kataji Brown's question, she, she does it the other way, right? What's the alternative to originalism? Well, it looks something like what Justice Jackson um, asked, right? Because she's looking at what Congress wanted, right? We should interpret laws. We should interpret ambiguity in laws, not based on what some long dead white people wanted. We should interpret laws based on what the what the law was intended to do by the people, many of whom are still alive, by the people who passed the law. So when she's looking at the Clean Water Act, she's thinking, what did Congress want the Clean Water Act to do? Not what did James Madison perhaps wanted the, wanted the Clean Water Act to do back in a time when he didn't understand that you couldn't drink lead? So just the framing of the question, the framing of her question in and of itself is a response and a, and a resistance to um, the conservative majority on the court. Unfortunately, it's, res it's a resistance to the conservative majority on the court. And the decision in this case, when it comes down, will probably once again harken back um, to long dead white men instead of our modern um, issues with climate change. And again, the court already showed its hand on that last term um, when it eviscerated the Clean Air Act and Congress's ability to regulate under it. Ellie, before we go, if you can give us a preview of the cases involving Native American families and LGBTQ rights. 
Yeah, these are these are critical cases that are also coming up later in this term. Um, for, for, for Native American families, um, it's a direct challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act that has been drummed up by conservatives who want to adopt Native children. Now, the Indian Child Welfare Act says that it is tribal sovereignty. It's the tribes that get to determine what happens to the children um, if the, their birth parents can't care for them. This makes sense if you understand tribal nations as sovereign entities. But if you think like a Republican and you understand them as exploitable resources, then you get to this attack where we have white parents who want to adopt Native children over the objection of their tribes, arguing that being prevented from adopting those Native children is racism against white people, which is a ridiculous answer. It's like a French couple wanting to adopt an American ch child being told no and be like, oh, you're racist against the French. Like that's that that's that argument. Um, the final case that you talked about um, that's also critically important um, is what you asked me about in the, the LGBTQ case and the, rights. And the, and the, and the 303 creative. So this is an attack on LGBTQ rights. We have a woman in Colorado who runs a graphic design store who wants to post on her website for weddings that she will not graphically design anybody's uh, wedding, any same-sex uh, marriage evite pages or whatever uh, she does. That's a point-and-click violation of Colorado's anti-discrimination law, but this woman is claiming that she has a free speech right um, to be bigoted in her public service, again, given the previous Supreme Court attacks on the rights of non-cis hetero white men, um, I think that case is also likely to come down 6-3 in favor of the bigotry that this woman proposes. Ellie Mistel, of course, we're going to come back to you as we look at the Supreme Court term. The nation's justice correspondent, author of the best-selling book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. And we'll link to your article, The Supreme Court Returns Monday Stronger and More Terrible Than Ever. Next up, we look at the former French colony of Burkina Faso, which just saw its second military coup in a year. What does the U.S. military have to do with it? Stay with us. The Vultures by Abdoulaye Sissé and Burkina Faso musician. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. For the second time this year, a military coup has occurred in the African nation of Burkina Faso. A group of army officers led by Captain Ibrahim Traoré seized power Friday, ousting another military officer, Lieutenant Colonel Paul-Henri Demiba, who'd led the country since a January coup. 
On Saturday, protesters attacked the French embassy, where some had believed the ousted president was hiding. Some supporters of Friday's coup flew Russian flags in the streets while calling for Moscow to help Burkina Faso confront an ongoing jihadist insurgency that began in 2015. We're joined right now by two guests. Karine Dufka is the Sahel Director for Human Rights Watch, and Aziz Fol is the coordinator for the international campaign Justice for Sankara, which has campaigned for years to uncover the truth behind the 1987 assassination of Thomas Sankara, who led Burkina Faso from 1983 to 1987. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Let's first go to Montreal, where we're joined by Aziz Fol. Uh, if you can talk about what is happening in Burkina Faso uh, right now, why have there been two coups in the last year? Well, truly, this is the aftermath, I think, of uh, Compaore's housing. The coup d'etat, which occurred, even if it's not democratic, and correspond to an internal struggle within the MPCR, uh, the, within the army, is actually a positive thing. Uh, former President Damiba committed many bad political maneuvers and had dared to defy the justice system, which has condemned President Compaore and folks uh, the main killers of uh, Sankara. You know, um, I'm going to ask you to step back, because as you that, make all these references, I think it would be most helpful to give us a history in a nutshell of Burkina Faso so we can understand who Thomas Sankara and Campore w were. Right. This is like a landlocked country, uh, quite poor, who actually have helped Ivory Coast becoming this big miracle on cocoa uh, and coffee. Uh, with, um, you know, the productive forces. And uh, until 1980s uh, was truly uh, a France-Afrique uh, hub. And when Compaoré uh, and Sankara took power, they had a major change, a revolutionary change in favor of women, uh, the peasantry, a change of the mode of production. And that lasted for three years with amazing achievement. And he was killed in an international plot, including local players, uh, his main friend, uh, Compaore, who ran the country for uh, three decades. And this is the industri uh, industrial uh, extractive uh, mining sector, mainly gold, and also the beginning of the geopolitical warfare in the region after what happened in uh, Tripoli, Libya, where the U.S. African Command and Friend has destroyed uh, the Jamahiriya of Gaddafi. And from there, start spreading mercenaries uh, who have started these jihadist cells, which clearly also are blossoming because of underdevelopment. And the significance, I mean, you have spent many years looking for justice and accountability in the assassination of Sankara. If you can talk about him um, uh, and his significance, not only in Burkina Faso, but in Africa. I think he symbolized for most African youth, uh, you know, the hope of a sovereign Africa. He actually gave his life for that. And this is why this fight against impunity is so important uh, and has created a landmark in the legal history of Africa itself. And so he's an icon, I think. And this is like a sweet revenge that the youth actually uh, are just using his image to gain more sovereignty. And this issue is very important, as also, you know, the whole Sahel region is not destabilized. And you have like two million people who have been displaced in the region. And um, the trial opened uh, a kind of uh, wound in the country. 
by actually undermining the role of France. And this is where the whole geopolitical landscape is changing. So not just Sankara has tackled the uh, so-called imperialist trend of France, but the new generation of leaders who actually learn from him are trying to do the same. So Ibrahim Traoré was, in, in, a, in, in a way, trying to rectify what Damiba did by trying to, uh, under the guise of reconciliation, bring over um, President Compaoré, despite of his condemnation in Burkina Faso. And this is the, the lower officers' ranks who were outraged by this gesture, but also the political maneuvers with Ivory Coast and France that actually create this um, uh, coup d'etat. And actually, the situation, uh, as we witness it, it's interesting in a way because they want to speed the process toward a democratic transition with civilian taking power nearly probably before 2024. And this is what actually probably is reducing the pressure and, and the embargo of the African Union and the uh, regional organization, which actually sent a mission in uh, Burkina Faso today. Corinne Defka, you're the Sahel director for Human Rights Watch. Um, if you can talk about the role of—well, um, talk about these last two coups, and then the role of the United States in military training, their connection to those involved with these coups. Apparently, <clears throat> the, um, the former president who came to power in a coup, um, uh, Damiba, has left for Togo, left on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. So Burkina Faso, since at least 2015, is experiencing a complex and devastating um, uh, crisis, which is both security because of the presence and the increasing presence in uh, of um, uh, armed Islamists uh, linked to the Islamic State and al-Qaeda, a humanitarian catastrophe, and then, of course, the political uh, crisis, which has been intensified by the coup, these two coups within the last year. Uh, the Burkina Bay have lost probably estimated to be 40 percent of their territory to these armed Islamist groups who are slaughtering people, uh, raping women and undermining um, their ability to uh, to farm. And it's a largely agrarian, agrarian society. On the other hand, the security forces have engaged in in a lethal counterterrorism strategy um, and and have um, uh, executed, allegedly executed hundreds of terrorism suspects. Uh, people are absolutely besides themselves, including the security forces. Damiba came uh, to power a year, uh, sorry, in January, um, pledging to address this deter rapidly deteriorating security situation on account of the armed Islamists. Um, and he was unable to do that to the extent that um, this really, I think, is the primary uh, uh, reason for, for, the, for the coup d'etat. Now, um, yes, Damiba, I believe, was trained by the, by the United States, if I'm not mistaken, but he was similarly trained by the French and by numerous other um, actors. Um, Burkina Faso is a very proud country, and they have largely tried to address the counterterrorism threat on their own. In many ways, they've resisted um, the presence on their territory of other of other countries. The United States uh, was engaged in training the military, again, the French and others as well. So I see this as a primarily a Burkina Bay problem. And it's situated within the wider Sahel, um, in which, you know, it's the fastest growing area for armed Islamist activity pr pretty much in the world. Um, and it's situated in between Mali, where there was, uh, where, where, which has been battling these armed Islamists linked to us, to, um, IS, the Islamic State and Al Qaeda. So it's really a very complex situation. 
and uh, again situated within uh, you know there's a there's a call for the people of Burkina Bay um, as as my colleague mentioned who was speaking just now there are 10 percent of that population two million out of 20 million people are displaced on account of this insecurity can you talk about why uh, protesters would be holding Russian flags and calling for assistance from Moscow Corinne well, there's we're, we're in a bit of a geopolitical realignment here with respect to military aid, where the the um, Russian-backed Wagner Group um, has has over the last year gone into Mali. Um, the Malians don't admit they're there; they say they're Russian traitors. But um, but these there are hundreds of them in the country, um, and it coincided with a, det- a serious deterioration of relationship with the French. Um, and the French did make some mistakes with respect to um, managing military sort of engagement in Mali. Um, so, so Mali is engaged on, um, um, you know, engage these these Russian trainers. Um, I myself documented a massacre uh, by jo- the joint um, uh, forces with the Malians and these 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 Russian backed trainers of three hundred people in March of this year. So they're engaging in very serious human rights abuses. But I think again, people are are beside themselves um, because of this growing um, and lethal Islamist threat that. That is has taken root in the country. So I think they're looking to Russia as France backed out of Mali. Um, I'm not quite sure. Uh, you know, I'm not convinced that 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 the Burkina uh, are going to welcome the, the the Russians in as they have in Mali. I'm not convinced about that. We'll see. But I think it's a reflection of their growing fear. Um, um, and remember, there are hundreds of, of Burkina Bay security forces who have lost their lives as well. So people are desperate and they're looking to anyone who might be able to help them better tackle this lethal threat. And what is Human Rights Watch calling for in Burkina Faso? Well, we don't take a position on mercenaries. We don't take a position on, on, on coups. What we look at are the human rights dynamics. We call on on uh, the, the coup leaders to respect rights, to restore democracy, but also for those engaged in counterterrorism operations to ensure that, that their response is grounded in human rights. Because if they don't do that, um, it only pushes more and more people into the hands of the armed Islamists who are adept and very clever at exploiting all kinds of fissures economic, uh, ethnic, um, political, and so on, to um, to garner new recruits. Um, and Aziz Fall, um, if you could address uh, the attack on the French embassy, if you can talk about the history of France in Burkina Faso. Well, I think uh, truly uh, this is not a Burkina Bay case. Uh, United States and France had a great responsibility in what is happening in the region, despite of uh, what my colleague is saying, I think uh, here we have to look at the geopolitical uh, problems that were actually implanted in that region, in the Sahelian region. So people are outraged with the role of France, but also the role of the United States, who have started this uh, terrorist cells in the region for geopolitical reason. So, uh, yeah, in a way, people want to change the, the, the landscape. I think President Macron, uh, just by saying that he would declassify the the document in the killing of Sankara when he said that he will change his strategy on the military uh, battlefield by changing Barkhane's role in Mali were not very convincing. We didn't receive most of the declassified document uh, as well as uh, for the United States. Uh, and it's the same situation that actually put these people trying to imitate what is happening in in the Republic of Central Africa. So if some of your uh, viewers can watch the AFRICOM go home film, which is uh, against foreign military base. This was screened 
12 years ago and explaining how the spreading of this geopolitical strata is evolving. Unfortunately, it was said, and I think Human Rights Watch and many other organizations like Amnesty International have to look at also the big picture, not just the local picture, but look at the big picture, the role of China, role of India, the opposition of the imperialist forces in the, in the ground, and the, the fierce resistance of the people of Mali and Burkina Faso and the rest. But having said that, most of this hierarchy, this military hierarchy, have been formed and trained by the U.S. AFRICOM as well. So we have to have an introspection here and look at the deep causes in order to have a new momentum that give uh, the Burkinabe people the worthy title of the land of the upright people. And I think these are very proud people who are trying with very little means to, to, to counter a, a geopolitical tide that is beyond the scope of their capacities. Uh, and finally, um, Professor Fall, uh, earlier this year, The Intercept reported U.S. trained officers have attempted at least nine coups and succeeded in at least eight across five West African countries since 2008, including Burkina Faso three times, Guinea, Mali three times, Mauritania and the Gambia. Um, if you can say what you think the U.S. should be doing or not doing in Africa. And finally, how did Thomas Sankara die? Well, Thomas Sankara died with the international plot that started with Charles Taylor being smuggled in Libya. Uh, and then it was a big plot where uh, Compaore, Ivory Coast, friends had were the mastermind of that coup, and he was killed for 10 years. His death certificate said that he died of natural death. So it was, uh, I think, now revealed in that trial how the whole thing happened. And we are still witnessing and hoping that we will have an international plot. I will tour uh, the United States uh, on the commemorative date, uh, October 15, I will go to New York and Washington asking for declassified documents showing the involvement of those uh, people who were in that plot. Having said that, um, it is true that the United States can change its policy, distance itself from the old Monroe Doctrine. Uh, the world doesn't belong to the United States, and I think we have to respect African sovereignty. We have to listen to the Pan-Africanist uh, position, which are very important. And uh, once we have that, if we have a, a, a different position on how the, the former 20th century cannot repeat itself in the 21st century, then I think the United States will change uh, his policy. No one is actually denying the military might of the United States. I think uh, they have a, a political, geopolitical uh, power. But uh, people in Africa look for a multi-power, multipolar system. They look for a more balance uh, on impunity cases. They look for an international order that is respected. And in that regard, I trust that the people of America, if they had learned what is happening in the ground, would distance themselves from uh, the Pentagon's policy. So this, I think, is important for a new 21st century to look at this achievement and to respect also African sovereignty. This Aziz, is the role of transnational and, and the rest. Aziz Falu, and thank you for being with us, coordinator for the international campaign Justice for Sankara. And Kareen Dufka, Sahel Director for Human Rights Watch. And here you're leaving Human Rights Watch. All the best in your next endeavors. Thank you. Next up, we go back more than a century in the United States to look at the Elaine Massacre of 1919, when white mobs in Arkansas killed over 200 African-Americans in one of the worst racial massacres in U.S. history. 
Stay with us. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. I have a burden. Nobody shares. I only comfort. I only stay. Jesus walking by my side all the way. Nobody knows how thrown in my road. Nobody knows how heavy my load. Nobody cares how dismal my way. How dark the night, how dreary the day. Nobody Knows, Nobody Cares, by Sister Rosetta Tharp from Arkansas. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. This past weekend marked the 103rd anniversary of one of the worst racial massacres in U.S. history. It took place in Elaine, Arkansas. Before the attack, Elaine was home to Richard Wright who became one of the most famous black writers in the United States, known for his acclaimed novel, Native Son, and his memoir, Black Boy, in which he describes how his uncle Silas Hoskins was lynched in 1916 near Lane by white people who wanted his business. Richard Wright was nine years old when he and his family were forced to flee. He wrote, quote, there was only silence, quiet weeping, whispers and fears. Uncle Hoskins had simply been plucked from our midst, and we, figuratively, had fallen on our faces to avoid looking into that white-hot face of terror that we knew loomed somewhere above us. This was as close as white terror had ever come to me, and my mind reeled. Why had we not fought back, I asked my mother, and the fear that was in her made her slap me into silence." Those the words of Richard Wright. He was describing a true story. Three years later, on September 30th, 1919, a white man was shot and was killed when guards stopped a group of white men from breaking into a meeting of black sharecroppers with the Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America to demand fair pay for their crops. Mobs of white people responded in Elaine, Arkansas, with three days of anti-black violence backed by hundreds of U.S. soldiers. Historians estimate hundreds of black people were killed, much of their land stolen. The anti-lynching journalist Ida B. Wells investigated the 1919 Elaine massacre and wrote, quote, Negroes were in a fair way to become independent. It was not to the interest of white landowners to let them do so, unquote. This is Elaine, Arkansas resident Charlie McLean. A couple of years before the massacre, you know, the price of cotton had, had, had gotten better. It was seven cents a pound at one point. And then it was 14 cents a pound, six months a year. And then another year or two, it went up. It just shot up almost like almost a dollar a pound. And, you know, when things started moving, you know, you know, from a sharecropper's perspective, the way that they were treating them um, in terms of, you know, every year you, 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 you do your crop and you come back and you owe them, <laughs> you know, you've done all this work. It, it could run you. And they did it for a long, for, you know, for decades. That's the way that it was. So finally, they, they got wise to it and said, okay, you know, we can get, if, if, you, if you're not going to pay us for what we're worth, 
uh, what we feel that this is worth, we're going to unionize ourselves. We're going to get a lawyer. We're going to sue you, and we're going to start taking our cotton and, and, and everywhere else. By the time September 30th, you know, happened, and they were in that church, it was already a done deal. It was already a powder keg, and the excuse and the the, the excuse that they needed. Uh, to quell what they called a a black rebellion was an excuse for them to go and massacre people. That's Charlie McLean, Elaine, Arkansas resident. Well, earlier this year, children of the descendants of the 1919 Black Massacre in Elaine, Arkansas, gathered memorial soil from where Richard Wright's uncle, Silas Hoskins, was thought to have been lynched near Elaine, and brought it to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, the National Lynching Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama, where founder Brian Stevenson personally received the jar of memorial soil. We have Silas Hoskins, Elaine, Arkansas, uh, 1916. And this is a significant one because uh, Silas Hoskins was the uncle of Richard Wright, the very famous author who wrote amazing books. And uh, Richard Wright talked about what happened to his uncle, and that's how we know his story. And because you have these two jars, we will be able to put them in our exhibit, and I'm really grateful for that. And so if you will turn that over, I will take it. And we will put this in our museum, and the next time you come, you'll be able to see the work that you've done. All right? Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. For more, we're joined by Julia Wright, the daughter of the literary giant Richard Wright, and Paul Ortiz, professor of history and director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at University of Florida in Gainesville. They were both part of a symposium this weekend hosted by the Elaine Legacy Center and the Richard Wright Civil Rights Center on this 103rd anniversary of the Elaine Massacre. Welcome you both to Democracy Now! Julia Wright, let's begin with you. Um, the significance of what took place. You have referred to your uncle Hoskins, your great uncle Hoskins, um, Richard Wright's uncle, as the black canary in the coal mine. He was killed three years before the massacre. Take it from there. Thank you for having me again, Amy. Yes, um, this has been so moving. This has been taken two years. Um, I didn't really—I wasn't sensitive to Silas Hoskins for a long time. It took another reading of Black Boy after George Floyd was murdered for me to read Black Boy through the lens— of Silas Hoskins lynching, two lynchings uh, separated by so many years and yet so similar. Um, reading Black Boy through that lens was chilling. And I realized then how heavily Silas Hoskins weighed on my father throughout his life, um, 
the 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 lynching of Silas Hoskins is a thread, a burning red thread that can be drawn through practically all his works from Uncle Tom's Children, where a Silas is lynched, in fact, um, to the long dream at the end of his life, uh, where in a town in Mississippi, there is also a story of lynchings. Uh, incredibly, my father never spoke about lynchings to me. He left me to discover that aspect of what is called the American nightmare by myself. And I thank him for it because I think he was wise. He realized I wasn't prepared for it. He waited until 1959 when his friend Martin Luther King visited him in Paris on his way to India and spent a day, they spent a day together. Uh, nobody knows what they talked about because they closed the office doors and they talked and they talked and they talked. But at one point, my father called me. I was 17 years old and he introduced me to this small, uh, light-skinned man, and he looked so familiar to me. I couldn't place him. And my father said, uh, this is Martin Luther King, Julia. And my father turned to Martin Luther King and said, Martin, I want you to do what we spoke about. And Martin opened his shirt and showed me the recent scar of his stabbing. And all my father said to me that I can remember is, this is what happens to us, Julia, when we fight for our rights. Martin remained silent. Silence is something that maybe, uh, there's a lot to say about black silence. Um, of course, Martin Luther King, who was stabbed in Chicago, not in the South, in Chicago, where he said he was more afraid, and when he was fighting for housing rights in Chicago for African Americans, that he said he was more afraid than he was anywhere in the South. Now, I wanted to bring in Paul Ortiz. And, Professor Ortiz, I'm glad you made it from Gainesville, from Florida, uh, so hard hit by the hurricane to Raleigh last night in North Carolina. Uh, but the two of you participated virtually in this event this weekend. Um, talk about what happened 103 years ago. Um, the significance of what the African-Americans in a lane who were landowners, business owners, professionals, calling for better compensation for their crops, what happened to them? Thank you, Amy. And it's such a great honor to be with Julia Wright. And what happened was, was that African-Americans in Phillips County, Arkansas, around a lane, Hoopspur, were really beginning to get organized. It was the World War I era. The price of cotton was increasing. 
But most importantly, African Americans were making major gains as landowners in places like Elaine, in places like the Black Belt of of uh, Alabama and Northern Florida, all across the South. W.E.B. Du Bois noticed this. And because of these gains and because of the role that African Americans played in World War I, their expectations were rising. And the white power structure mobilized in, against these rising aspirations. It's important to mention, as you mentioned, Amy, that many African Americans in Elaine around Phillips County owned their own land. And those that did not uh, were on the way to becoming landowners. And they were beginning to organize unions uh, in Elaine, but all throughout the South. And the Progressive Household uh, Union in Hoopspur and in Phillips County, Arkansas, was really coming together with a plan not only to increase land ownership among black farmers, but to begin to farm and market their produce cooperatively. And this was seen as a threat by the white, pa white power structure. They mobilized against it. Uh, they began to attack uh, farmers, uh, black farmers, even before the Elaine Massacre. And Julia Wright mentioned her great-uncle, Silas Hoskins, who was lynched because he was a successful black businessman. And so all of this came to a head during the Elaine Massacre when black farmers in Phillips County reached a level of organization where hundreds of, of, of black farmers were joining the union. And this is when the white power structure uh, struck back. And there's a number of legacies that come out of this, Amy, that we tried to address at the 103rd anniversary of the Elaine Massacre, um, organized by the Elaine Legacy Center um, in Elaine, Arkansas. You know, one of the legacies is this legacy of black land loss, uh, that African-American farmers have been driven off the land in places like Elaine, in places like Florida, in places like Mississippi. Uh, another legacy, as Judge Wendell Griffin said at the symposium, is the criminal justice system. Amy, it's important to remember that hundreds of African-Americans were massacred in and around Phillips County, Arkansas in 1919. Not a single white perpetrator of this violence was ever put on trial. Instead, African-American farmers were put on trial. They were known as the Elaine 12. A nationwide crusade organized by people that you mentioned, IDB Wells, the NAACP, Walter White, uh, Scipio Jones, a local black attorney, very heroic gentleman. They had to organize a national defense uh, campaign to help get these men some justice. It results in Moore v. Dempsey, a landmark Supreme Court case in 1923, in which the 14th Amendment is brought to bear. Um, the convictions of those men, six of them, by the way, convicted, uh, sentenced to death, all of them tortured brutally, uh, electrocuted, whipped, coerced in, into testifying uh, against their peers. And, Professor Ortiz, um, there were 500 U.S. soldiers who were involved in the killing of hundreds of African-Americans in this massacre? Yes, Amy, this made a cover-up much more difficult compared to other anti-black massacres, say in Rosewood, Florida, or Ocoee, the Ocoee massacre in Florida. The governor uh, requested federal troops. These troops were supposed to restore order. Uh, in fact, many of them engaged in the massacre. They shot people down we have in the 10 streets. Seconds, they, shot, they shot people down in the woods. And so, again, those murders were never prosecuted. Well, 
We can't leave it there, so we're going to continue this conversation and bring you part two at democracynow.org. Paul Ortiz, professor of history and director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at University of Florida Gainesville, and the Julia Wright, the daughter of the literary giant Richard Wright, who wrote Black Boy and Native Son. That does it for our show. Happy birthday, Becca Stelly. I'll be speaking at UPenn, uh, I mean, at Penn State and at Brown this week. Check democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman.